Today I am preaching on the life of Moses and on the plagues that visited Egypt. I'm going to cover nine plagues today. So uh, there's a lot of scripture uh, that I'm going to get through fairly quickly. And uh, so uh, it's very rare that the hardest part of any sermon is reading the scripture, but this is one of these Sundays. So I'm starting with Exodus chapter 7, verse 19, and here we go. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs to your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come into your palace and your bedroom and into your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. And then jumping down to verse 13. And the Lord did what Moses asked, and the frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But then Pharaoh saw that there was relief. When there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. Then jumping to verse 32. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then Pharaoh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And then jumping to verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Then verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hell will fall all over Egypt, over people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hell and lightning. Lightning flashed down to the ground, so the Lord rained hell on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. And then in chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and that night. By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hell, everything growing in the fields and the fruit of the trees. Nothing green remained on a tree or plant in all of the land of Egypt. And then going to verses 21 and through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) today I'm going to talk about what we don't talk about in church anymore a God who judges sin we see this judgment embodied in the ten plagues visited on Egypt nine of which I read about today the first plague was the Nile River and all the water of Egypt turning into blood even water in pots and pans and wells and bathtubs in Egypt The Nile itself was considered a god by the Egyptians, the lifeblood of Egyptian civilization. What irony that God actually turned it into blood. There was no water to drink. It says the fish died. The place began to stink. No water to irrigate the crops or bathe in. The priests, the the magicians of Egypt could mimic this phenomena though on a small scale, but they could not undo it. This was devastating to Egypt on all kinds of levels, especially their national pride. Then came frogs, billions of frogs, in your bed, in your chair, in your clothes, everywhere you went. And when they died, there were mounds of frog carcasses everywhere. It said Egypt reeked. During these plagues, most of the time, Egypt was a stinky place. Still, Pharaoh resisted. Then came the gnats. All the dust, it says, became gnats, biting insects everywhere on everyone. Imagine this room filled with millions of biting insects, and you're trying to sit through church. By the way, this is why I do not go camping. There is a reason God invented houses and windows and screen doors and air conditioning. It's so you don't lay on hard ground in the cold or the heat and have biting bugs. Don't ask me to go camping with you. 
Even the magicians of Egypt, by the way, could not mimic this. They could come up with fake blood, but they could not control bugs. They confessed to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They were the first Egyptians to realize the power they were up against. And after this plague, the Hebrews in the land of Goshen are given supernatural protection. Israel, which had suffered so much under the hand of the Egyptians, will suffer no more. What happens to Egypt will not happen to them. After the gnats come, all kinds of insects come in the next plague. It says there was a mixture of insects, we, all kinds. I suspect the main critters were, were mosquitoes. Which, by the way, one of my first questions when I get to heaven is, why did you make mosquitoes? What good are they? Mosquitoes and cats. Clouds of them. The misery quotient went up. Then came the plague on all Egyptian livestock, a staple of any civilization. The sheep, the cattle, the goats, the horses, the donkeys all died. They were once again mounds of carcasses stinking all over Egypt. And a major supply of milk and beef were gone. Imagine life without a T-bone steak, ribeye steak, barbecued ribs, pork chops. I can't even think about it. Then came the plague of boils. Now the plagues were really getting personal. Imagine boils all over your body on your feet so you can't walk, in your mouth so you can't eat, on your torso so that lying down is abject misery. The magicians of Egypt couldn't even stand and face Moses and Aaron because of the boils on their feet. Then came the plague of hail. The hail was so large and intense it shattered trees. It shattered trees. I've had hail hit my car I don't want to talk about it. It destroyed crops and vegetation everywhere. By the way, Pharaoh at this point cried, Uncle, the Lord is right and I am wrong. I'll let you go. But as soon as the storm stopped, Pharaoh reversed his position. Like many of us, as soon as the crisis is over, Pharaoh ignored God again. Hank was talking about hostage negotiators. Often we use God as 911. Then came the locusts. The sky grew dark with trillions of them. They, by the way, do you know locusts fly in formation? Years ago, with, with satellites, they spotted a swarm of locusts 1,200 miles wide flying west of Africa towards Great Britain. These locusts, which attacked Egypt, stripped off every leaf of every tree. Every green thing was consumed. People who have seen such things, and it still happens, say that they're approaching, sounds like a 747 landing in your backyard. And then came the plague of supernatural darkness. Not even the light of a lantern or a candle could penetrate it. Can you imagine a supernatural darkness where you turn on the flashlight and it's still absolutely dark? A darkness, it says, that could be physically felt. Everyone in Egypt for three days was functionally blind. It was like descending into the grave itself. Yet Pharaoh hardened his heart again and again. His arrogance went beyond rationality. His narcissism, his pride, his addiction to power and adulation were his drugs of choice. 
He craved them, defended them, was willing to sacrifice everything, including the welfare of his people for them. By the way, this happens all the time. I see people dying for their drug of choice all the time. I see people who will not give up their narcissism, no matter who it hurts or how lonely they get. I see people who sacrifice everything for their greed, even if it kills them or destroys their family. I see people who get so addicted to control, they won't let it go no matter who they lose. Certain sins, after a while, are addictive in nature, and they take over our personalities. They become us. They become our life. Power and adulation was Pharaoh's life. But even in God's judgment, there is mercy. Did you ever notice the Bible never mentions anyone dying in Egypt until they get to the 10th plague? The plagues get progressively worse. It was like God saying, let's see if this one gets their attention. And when it doesn't, he ups the ante. It gets a little worse. He goes, well, maybe this will do it. You see, even God's judgment is full of mercy in many instances. God's judgment has a purpose. And the main purpose is to shatter human egotism and pride, especially people like Pharaoh. The message of God's judgment is not hate. It's not like, well, you're not doing my will, I hate your guts. It's not anger. It's not even primarily justice. The message of God's judgment is simple. It's that you and I are not in charge. Not Pharaoh, not Egypt, not America, not Woody Dalton. You, we are limited, fallible human beings who are going to die someday and we need to face our mortality. The message of judgment is that all things natural can be, and material can be lost in an instant. Look for, when judgment comes, it says, look for something else to be your source. Look for someone else to save you besides yourself or your company or your government. Find something else to build your life around. Judgment is meant to shatter self-sufficiency and the illusions we don't need God. Judgment is meant to drive us to our knees and into his arms. There was a patience even in the plagues. Each plague, all nine of them, gives Pharaoh and Egypt a chance to analyze and change their minds before the angel of death comes in the tenth plague. Often wounding, I find, is the only way to get people to be open to new possibilities. Often it is only pain that helps us see something beyond value, beyond our lusts and our desires. God won't tolerate us living the illusion that we control our lives, that we can fix any problem, that we can manipulate any situation. He will not allow us to go unchallenged in the belief that the critical element in our life is our brains or our brawn or our education or our looks or our portfolio. We have difficulty with a God who judges sin. We think it makes him look mean or angry, or unloving, or that he has some sort of split personality. But we must understand our God is a consuming fire. He's not this big blob of tolerance. T 
Tolerance and love are hardly the same thing. He is an inferno of passionate, all-consuming love that refuses to leave us in our lostness. Mark Buchanan said that I had dinner once with some people who were uncomfortably surprised to learn I was a pastor. By the way, I experience this all the time on a golf course. I run into somebody, about the ninth hole, eighth hole, they ask me, you know, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. You can see them stop and try to count all the cuss words they've said up until the eighth or ninth hole. I don't have the heart to tell them I grew up in a cuss factory. After a moment of awkward silence, this lady ventured a theological claim. Well, that's nice, she told Buchanan. I've always felt that churches serve an important role in society. They are safe havens for the masses. People should be able to go into a church and escape reality for a little while. Buchanan said, I couldn't resist. You know, I missed all that reality they were escaping in the book of Acts when I watched Jesus hang on a cross. Buchanan said, I did a funeral once for a lady who was a Christian, but a few of her many children and grandchildren were not. I thought I spoke the gospel clearly and boldly, and afterward a woman came up to me. Thank you, she said. That was so nice what you said about Jesus. It was really nice. I'm religious too. The family always asks me to pray for the weather when we go golfing. That's what Jesus exists for, is for the weather when we go golfing. By the way, I'm an avid golfer, and I can tell you, Jesus doesn't care one bit about golf or golfers. I've cried out to him many times on a golf course, and he's never answered once. But here is what Buchanan says about his experiences with these people at dinner. He said, I reckon this, the idol of the nice God, the safe God, has done more damage to biblical faith, more damage to people coming to faith, than the caricature of the tyrant God ever did. The despotic God, howling his rage, wielding punishment with both ransacking destruction and surgical precision, at least inspired something in us. We were afraid. We wanted to appease. But this milquetoast, pampering deity is nothing but a cosmic lackey, an errand boy we call on to make our golf games pleasant and to help us escape reality for a little while and then summarily dismiss him, worship him, revere him, die for him, believe that he died a cruel and bloody death for us? You must be kidding. The safe God has no power to console us in grief or shake us from complacency or rescue us from the status quo. He just putters in his garden, smiles benignly, waves now and then, and spends mostly a lot of time in his room doing puzzles. Who would leave everything and follow that God? The excuse I hear most often when people continue in blatant sin is, I think God understands. The kind of God I worship isn't hung up on stuff like this. It's as though God were a half-daft old uncle, hair sprouting out from his ears, a bit runny around the eyes, winking at our little pranks and picadillos. Well, that's nice. But God isn't nice. And God isn't safe. God is a consuming fire. And though he cares about the sparrows in the air, the embodiment of his care is rarely doting 
on us or pampering us. God's main business is not ensuring that you and I get parking places close to the mall entrance or that the bed sheets in the color we want are miracle, miracle, thank you, Jesus, they're on sale this week. His main business is making you and me holy. His main business is making you and I like Jesus Christ. His main business is setting us free. His main business is using you and I to change the world. And for those of us who love the status quo more than holy ground, whose hearts are more slow than on fire, that always requires both the kindness and sternness of our God. Buchanan says, so often I am what I preach against. He says, I want to be rescued but not bothered by God's agenda. I want to be comforted but never disrupted in my life. I want to be soothed, not disturbed in what I'm doing. Does that sound like us? God is passionately in love with you, and He is good. As we sang this morning, He is good all the time, but our God will not be domesticated. He will not turn into our lackey. Richard Niebuhr, writing about how the church was doing just that 80 years ago, he said this, We now serve a God without wrath, brought to men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, or at least who didn't need to go to the cross. God help us. God is not the big teddy bear in the sky. By the way, you may be asking, what does God's judgment look like since none of us have seen ten plagues lately. I'm glad you asked. I think God's judgment is primarily letting a broken world do what it wants. Paul says in Romans 2 that when humanity turned against God, God gave humanity over to its depraved instincts and desires. In other words, God's wrath is letting sinful people keep on sinning until it warps us, traps us, imprisons us. The punishment for sin is to let us keep on sinning until we mangle ourselves, until we are irrational on how we live, until we become so addicted that we destroy ourselves one way or another. Because you see, when you become addicted to sin, sin always carries within it the seeds of destruction. Sin from heaven's point is a kind of insanity. And while I'm on the unpleasant subject of judgment, let me bring up the most unpleasant subject of all. Hell. You know, that thing we're embarrassed to talk about anymore? Jesus died on the cross for a lot of reasons. He died to restore our relationship with God. He died to forgive us our sins. He died to make a way to heaven. He died to bring the kingdom of God to earth. But make no mistake about it, Jesus died to keep us out of hell. Jesus believed there was a literal hell. In fact, he talked about the subject far more than anyone else in Scripture. A lot more than anyone else in Scripture. Maybe it was because before he got here, he had seen it. He used words and metaphors to describe what words and metaphors cannot describe. 
The essence of hell, by the way, is not God torturing us. It never says that once in Scripture. It's not his nature. The essence of hell is people choosing deliberately to to turn away from what is good for them and choosing alternatives that cannot help but lead to the warping of a human life and a human soul. Please hear me on this. People choose their own hell. People make their own hells beginning in this world long before they reach the next world. Aren't there plenty of examples of people you know who choose to go on living hellish, irrational existences despite what God offers or even common sense demands? I don't know about you, but I see hell around me all day long. The addict in the gutter on the street. The bitterness in a heart that ruins life. The lust for porn that destroys real love from people that really love them. I could go on and on and on. People choose hell all the time. Even when they are aware of the devastating consequences. Even when it's absurd to keep doing what they're doing. We send ourselves to hell, not God. Jesus came to keep us out of hell, not damn us to it. Human arrogance and depravity in the end says, I will worship myself or something more to my liking rather than the God of grace and goodness. And when such a choice is made, it dooms us. And here's the irony of it all. We become imprisoned and we are the one that makes the shackles. We become empty. We become tormented. And we are the ones that created the instruments of our torture. If you think hell is an absurdity in the next life, then take another look at the absurdity of hell in this one. We not only choose our own hells, we help build them. We help construct them. Like I said, God's judgment and hell itself is let. How do you build hell? From God's point of view, God's judgment, God lets us do what we want. And on judgment day, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? How could you give me freedom to choose? How could you let me choose what I worshipped? How could you let me do what I wanted to do and let me trivialize or warp or destroy myself? Freedom demands a hell as well as a heaven. And when we go to hell, we can blame no one else. No one else, including the God of heaven. But even God's judgment has a purpose. It comes to soften hard hearts. It comes to show us our limitations, our weaknesses, the disease of human lostness. Bill Moyers filmed a television special on the hymn Amazing Grace. He followed a crew. That he got a crew and they, they followed Johnny Cash as he went into maximum security prisons. And they watched the prisoners as Johnny Cash sang Amazing Grace. And Johnny then wouldn't talk to them. Cash asked prisoners after prisoner, what does this hymn mean to you? What does Amazing Grace to you mean to you? 
And one man who was convicted for attempted murder replied, I grew up in a Christian home, and grace didn't mean that much. It was kind of, expect, you know, it's a word we threw around all the time. And then he said, I, was, I went to church most of my life, and grace didn't mean that much. And he said, I was even a deacon in the church, but grace didn't mean that much. I never knew what grace meant until I ended up in this prison cell. And Jesus came and found me in a prison cell, and suddenly I understood what amazing grace meant. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem with most of us is we don't think we're wretches. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace, and here's how judgment and grace, here's the dance. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. That is judgment with mercy in it. Ultimately, God's judgment to the lost is to open them up to the possibility and need of grace. St. Augustine put it this way, God gives where he finds empty hands. A person holding on to lesser gods needs somebody sometimes to help pry their hands off of those things that are destroying them, help pry their hands off those things that are lesser, and look up. Because you see, I can't be healed of cancer if the doctor won't tell me I'm in trouble. Can you imagine a doctor going, Oh, I love you. You're, you know, we could, you have cancer and we could save you, but it would upset you if I told you. It would upset me a whole lot more if you don't tell me. And I can't be cured of cancer if I see surgery and radiation and chemotherapy as acts of cruelty. I got news for you. Sometimes love is tough. Sometimes to get healed, you got to get cut on. You got to get radiated you got to drink stuff that it literally is poison at one level in order to be free of something worse. But once you find grace, once you find grace, it changes everything. Our sins are covered and forgiven and remembered no more forever. Hallelujah. Our souls are changed. Our hearts are transformed. We live and are treated as if we are Jesus Christ himself because we are in Christ. Think about that. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When God listens to Jesus, he is your defense. When God treats you, he treats you on nothing but the basis of how he would treat his own son. Hallelujah. The Father sees only the Son's perfection in us. We are forever free. There is now no condemnation that anyone can level at us. No sin that can separate us from his arms. No problem he cannot use to grow us. For all things work to the good. All wrath was forever absorbed for us by Christ on the cross. All punishment is paid for forever by him. Heaven is ours and it starts now. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Christ's love and presence saturate our soul and life. And nothing can stop it. Nothing, not devils. Not devil himself, not demons, not things past, present, or future, not above, on the earth, below the earth, not something. Oh, oh the, the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Even if you get cancer tomorrow, 
Even if you get cancer, you will not have to wonder if that is God's judgment. It's not. It's not. Even if you go blind next week, you'll never have to worry about the heart of God towards you. As far as God is concerned, only love operates in our life. Grace is the final word about everything that God will do with you. It is Love is the final word about everything. You never have to fear the wrath of God again. Hallelujah. Whatever happens, whatever happens, you do not have to wonder what God's up to. He is here to love you and grow you. It is a wonderful thing that we have entered into. A pastor in a town where he lived, he said a little girl was dying. Her name was Caitlin. He said, my daughter Sarah attended preschool with Caitlin. And on the days when I picked Sarah up, I would often find her and Caitlin playing together. They were two vigorous, joyful four-year-olds, quick to laugh and cry and sing together. One day, Caitlin's mother, Bonnie, came to pick her up, and something went terribly wrong. Bonnie wrote this to her pastor. Have you ever had a day that you know has changed your life forever? A day that you would do anything to black out? Or just fast forward past. February 28, 1997. I arrived at the preschool. Caitlin was standing in the playground looking down at the grass. One of her playmates said several times, Caitlin, mommy is here. I spoke to her and there was no reaction. So I approached her and lifted her chin up with my finger. When I did this, I realized something was wrong. Her eyes were vacant. And she did not recognize me, her mother. I immediately called for the preschool teacher. Caitlin began to waver. I knelt down beside her and laid her across my lap. The teacher called her name and did other things to get her to respond. Her eyes were open but not focused. They rolled to the right. She remained limp. The ambulance was called. I carried her inside and started to lay her on her side. When I did this, she began to cry and call for mommy. When the paramedics arrived, I was holding her and kissing her and weeping. We were taken to the hospital by ambulance. I was told she had a seizure, but she would be fine. Tests were ordered. The tests agreed with the initial diagnosis. Caitlin would be fine. But Caitlin wasn't fine. She grew more and more pale. Her speech started to slur. And she began to fumble things, stumble often. She got more and more clumsy. She couldn't hold things. She walked into walls and door jams and fell down a lot. Her speech worsened. Words started coming out in guttural chunks or in mournful groans. Other four-year-old kids grew afraid of her. Some made fun of her. The doctor kept ordering tests. Then one day, Caitlin's mother and father got the news they dreaded but half expected. Things weren't all right with Caitlin. Caitlin was dying. She had Batten's disease, a rare and incurable congenital degenerative neural disorder. What it meant was, was that her muscles were literally petrified. They would turn hard like wood, then they would turn hard like stone. They would harden until one day she could no longer swallow or breathe or her heart beat. 
Caitlin's parents, her brother, her grandparents, her aunts and uncles and cousins, her friends, her church family, all watched while little Caitlin drew slowly her last breaths. And they could do nothing. Caitlin's mother, of course, was a committed Christian. And she drenched Caitlin's bed with her tears. She beat her fist bloody on heaven's door, crying out for Caitlin. She attended a church full of godly, caring people. They prayed. Other people in other churches prayed. They prayed for many things. Strength for the parents, wisdom for the doctors, comfort for Caitlin. But mostly, they prayed that God would heal Caitlin. But God didn't heal Caitlin. The irony of this is kind of that the people, the next door neighbors who lived beside Caitlin, while they were going through this, these folks literally won the state lottery. More than $600,000. And the pastor said, I know almost nothing about these people except that they have a lovely house. The house, he said, I was told was already paid for and had been paid for for a long time. These people were well off. I'm not sure why they were buying lottery tickets. I'm not sure if they prayed to win the lottery or if they pray at all. But they won the lottery next door, more than $600,000. And in the house next door, Caitlin was dying. But in the middle of all this pain and irony, Bonnie, Caitlin's mother, wrote this. God is doing a mighty work through our little girl. Why she is sick is not for me to understand. All I know is that out of her life, Jesus Christ is shining. God's grace is on her. His love is on her. And those that dare to get close to her feel it. They can't help but see it. And she said, I quote John eleven four: 4, This sickness is not unto the death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here's the point of this story. Even in the middle of tragedy, grace still changes everything. To the world, Caitlin's neighbors look like they're the blessed ones. But we know who was really blessed. It was the little dying girl next door, surrounded by the love of God, flowing all around her. She was the blessed one. To the world, the neighbors who won the lottery look like they're the wealthy ones. But we know it was the family bathed by God's Spirit the family saturated with God's presence, the family that was receiving literally prayers from hundreds and hundreds of people. They were the rich ones. To the world, the family with healthy bodies seemed like the ones that should be grateful. But we know it was Caitlin and her family, Caitlin, who was protected from fear and healed of not her Batten's disease, but of humanity's real disease. And who would never, although she would taste the first death, never taste the second death. Those are the people who are truly grateful today. Grace changes everything. Even if it's not obvious to the naked eye. This is what real salvation is about. 
It is about that God came for us, died for us, lives for us, prays for us, sent His Spirit to us, and His grace saturates anything and everything, no matter what it looks like, good or bad, happy or sad. The grace of God is fully operational, and nothing can stop it. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Not, no, no matter what's going on, every person here, listen to this. No matter what's going on in your life, you live in grace today. 2,000 years ago, God sent us Jesus. And he took on somebody much bigger than Pharaoh. In fact, he took on Pharaoh's Lord. And he defeated him, not with plagues, but on a cross. The Red Sea didn't open up. But the grave did. And now we can live free. Free from fear of God. Free from alienation. Free from the consequences of sin. Free from the second death. Free from hell. Yes, hell. Free from condemnation. We are free indeed. Why? Because we live in grace. Grace in a fallen world, but grace... Nevertheless, in fact, it's grace that overcomes a fallen world. Hallelujah! No wonder the writers of Hebrews said, What if we ignore so great a salvation? How can we take something like this for granted? Our lives should be overflowing with gratitude. Our lives should be committed to someone who has done this much for us. Our lives should be touched by grace and we pass it on. We should be on fire. If you understand the salvation that you have been given and what you, not only what you have been spared from, but invited to. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, time's up. i got to shut up. I'd like the worship team to come. And we didn't plan this. I, I, it spontaneously happened in the first service. But we cannot leave this service without singing Amazing Grace. And I want you to sing it because, because it's your song. A wretch like you got to. You might go like, oh, no, I'm not a wretch. <laughs> Listen to me. I know a lot about a lot of you. You're in the wretch club. You really are. And I'm in the wretch club too. God saved wretches like us. Hallelujah. We once were lost, but now we're found. We once were blind, and now we see. Let us sing our song, don't you think? I'd like the intercessors to come forward. I'd like you to stand. I'd like Randy to lead us in amazing grace. I'm pretty sure he knows it. <laughs> and let's worship the Lord. Before we sing, let's worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. sing five of the 13 verses. If you want to see the other 13, look them up. They're wonderful.
been given us, we'd be dancing in the aisles right now, even though it's a sin. If we knew, if we knew what's, been, what's coming, no less days, we probably couldn't stop crying. If we knew what has been purchased for us by grace through Jesus Christ and that you receive it freely by faith, if we had any idea, we'd be turning somersaults right now. Let us live in gratitude, profound gratitude. Let us not ignore so great a salvation. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord one more time. Mm. Mm.